Welcome to episode 24 of the Humanist Agenda podcast. Today we have a lecture from Bob Ripley, who is a former ordained minister and the author of Life Beyond Belief, A Preacher's Deconversion. And he'll be speaking to us about life after becoming a non-believer. Now on to the lecture. It's hard to believe, but it was five years ago this month, actually, that I wrote in my syndicated column, uh, which I had written for 27 years, that my mind had changed. And if you don't mind, let me just quote. Where once I proclaimed the doctrines of Christianity with passion and sincerity, I am now convinced that religion, all religion, is man-made. As with the long line of deities dotting the history of our species, the idea of one God, Yahweh, made manifest in Jesus of Nazareth is our means to an end, to explain how we got here, for instance, or to avoid looking fate in the face or to gain an edge over our enemies. I began this journey by asking questions. It continued by not being content with trite cliches or lazy affirmations. Curiosity is an amazing accelerant. I am a passionate advocate for unremitting intellectual honesty, for reason and reality, for love and learning. My advocacy simply no longer assumes a deity. End of quote. Well, in the parlance of our age, that column actually kind of went viral. The link to the London Free Press's uh, publishing of that column was shared over 1,700 times. There was a steady stream of media interviews and messages on my inbox, and of course we packed the Wolf Hall five years ago. Um, Because right after that column came out, then the book Life Beyond Belief was released. And the book was really my attempt to meticulously chronicle my journey in more detail than the column for those who might be interested in knowing how somebody could do a 180 degree and go from a theist to a theist. So here I am, five years later. Tonight, what I want to do uh, is, and I'm going to speak for a while, and then we're going to take a break, and then have some questions and answers after. So what I want to do tonight is share with you five things that I have learned over the last five years as an atheist. Now, before I do that, I want to qualify something. When I say these are lessons that I learned, these are not so much things that never, ever occurred to me before. They're not insights that were previously foreign to me. They're sort of like notions that I kind of knew, but they were reaffirmed over the last five years. Okay, here we go. One, belief without evidence is not swayed by evidence. You should know that I am chronically naive. My wife, Deb's here, and she will tell you all about that. I am a naive person. And this aspect of my character was reaffirmed over the last few years. Now, I never, ever thought that my deconversion would make me a Moses and lead a mass exodus of people from the promised land to the land flowing with reason and logic. But I probably did have a healthy dose of what what I shall call the reverse of the zeal of the convert. I think that inside I was hopeful that given my profile as a writer and as a preacher, and with the notoriety that came with the publication of the book, that my story might be persuasive. I sort of assumed that once people were confronted by the evidence of, say, how we got here or how the Bible got here, 
that people would set aside creation myths and claims of biblical infallibility. If people were forced to face the difficult, terrible texts of the alleged Word of God, they would have to deal with them somehow in their own way, such as the command of God to kill women and children, or the edict that if a woman isn't a virgin at her wedding, she should be stoned to death, or that if you do not serve God, you should be forced to eat your children. Yes, that is in the Bible, Leviticus 26, that sort of thing. Or what about the dubious texts of the Bible? What if I pointed out that part in the Bible where Jesus is alone in the Garden of Gethsemane, talking to God, who is himself, and someone who wasn't there wrote down what Jesus said decades later in a language other than the language Jesus spoke? Or what about the contradictory texts? The last words of Jesus on the cross, or his resurrection of appearances? Or what if I pointed out the fact that, well, in the Old Testament, Moses and Abraham saw God, but in the New Testament says, no man shall see God. I figured that at the very least, believers would have to loosen their tight, tenacious grip on a literal interpretation of the Bible and admit that the stories that they hung on to were fictional or at least metaphorical at best. I think I naively thought that when people realized that Jesus is just one of a long line of virgin-born, dying and rising gods, they would reassess their belief in him as being unique. That if people stood back and considered the many tribes who have made sacrifices to appease an angry God, they might have second thoughts about drinking the blood of Jesus at communion. But you know what? I was wrong. What I have come to appreciate is that if you believe something in the absence of evidence, those beliefs will not be dissuaded in the face of evidence. I'll always be grateful to uh, my friend who continues to serve as the pastor of a very large uh, church in Brooklyn, New York. Dan wrote the foreword to the book Life Beyond Belief. And in it, he says this, If you're a Christian, you should take this book seriously. And if you're not, you'll find companionship. I always thought that was very brave of Dan to uh, recommend to all Christians that they ought to read my book. But then he also goes on and says this, I've spent years dealing with these issues, reading science and philosophy and theology, wrestling with the texts of terror and asking what good the whole thing is. I've come through it as a believer, a joyful one, and I confess the historic creeds without crossing my fingers. Interesting. I've come to appreciate that faith is sometimes so strong, no evidence can shake it. That for some people, their belief systems are so ingrained in their identity that abandoning them is just unthinkable. I realized to my dismay, for instance, that believers would much rather cherry-pick the good bits out of the Bible and say they believe in the whole thing rather than read the whole thing and be faced with the violent, jealous, misogynistic God of the Bible. They will not question the infallible Word of God even when its claims are debunked by science or just common sense. A long time ago, I asked one pastor how it was that the Antarctic penguins hopped 
from the South Pole all the way up to the Middle East to get on Noah's Ark and then afterwards hopped off Noah's Ark and made the way back to the South Pole. You know what his answer was? God made it happen. Perhaps like me, you've heard believers who are very proud to declare, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Some of you may remember, oh, about five years ago, there was a pastor by the name of Peter LaRuffa from Kentucky who famously said, if somewhere within the Bible I were to find a passage that said 2 plus 2 equals 5, I would believe it, accept it as true, and then do my best work to understand it. So basically what I realized is that the very evidence that persuaded this believer that religion is man-made was not sufficient evidence for other believers to question their faith. Maybe like my friend Dan, they too had wrestled with the evidence, but had somehow found their way either around it or found a way to believe in spite of it. Or maybe they just didn't want to face it. Another former colleague in ministry who I actually met with last month uh, after being kind of estranged for 10 years told me that he started to read my book and then he stopped. I don't know if the evidence was too disturbing or whether he just didn't want to know, but he stopped reading and he still continues to serve as a minister. It reminded me of what Upton Sinclair said. It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Or maybe Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and Catholic theologian, got it right when he said people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. If offered comforting uh, ideas or hard truths, people tend to pick the comforting ideas. So, frankly, I've given up trying to convince believers of anything because, in the words of Carl Sagan, their belief is not based on evidence. It's based on a deep-seated need to believe. So that's number one. Number two, we are fiercely tribal. Fiercely tribal. Now, we know that we humans are a communal species. Um, As Yuval Noah Harari points out in his very excellent work, which I recommend, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, it is our ability to work together as groups that have helped us to survive as a species. Now, even though our tribes are no longer necessary for our survival, tribes give us a sense of belonging. They feed our quest for meaning and for inclusion. In popular culture, tribalism is a way of thinking or behaving in which people are loyal to their social group above all else and display animosity towards those who are outside the group based on other differences. The tribe then can tend to shun the one who leaves the tribe. Now, since I had been retired for five years before the book came out, uh, I did not uh, face the... difficulties that other clergy have faced when they left the pulpit while still sort of in active ministry. Remember how I said when the book came out that there were messages in my inbox? Some of them were from clergy who wrote that while they agreed with me, they could not go public because they knew they would be shunned by their religious tribe. 
They are the closeted clergy, not those who are gay or who have behaved badly, but those who have changed their mind and no longer believe in God, but are still in ministry. They have weighed their doctrines and found them wanting. They have sided with the growing number of people on the census that tick off the none box in the question of religion. But to go public means they would lose their job and also perhaps lose their family and their friends and their very identity as a person. Back in 2006, uh, former evangel- evangelical pastor Dan Barker, who has been one of your speakers, talked to evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins about the challenge faced by clergy who are closeted in their disbelief of how much, what could be done to help them. And a few years passed, but in 2011, the clergy project was launched with 52 charter members. Uh, just briefly, the clergy project, for those of you who may not know, is an online forum for current or former religious professionals who no longer hold supernatural beliefs. There's a website, but it can only be accessed uh, by people who are screened and registered forum participants for obvious reasons, so that they won't be outed by someone who might want to do them harm. Uh, The members of the clergy project then can seek a community and get help uh, and know they're not going to be judged. The clergy project just within the last three weeks, I think, topped 1,000 members. 1,000 clergy who no longer believe but who still remain in ministry. People who are not clergy also have told me that while they agree with me, they could never possibly say it out loud and alienate themselves from their tribe of their family. I have a good friend of mine who did tell her Pentecostal parents that she had left the faith and her mother continues to harass her, wishing at one point that her daughter would be better off dead. Research shows that there is a sense of loss akin to a death when someone no longer believes in a supernatural deity. Now, somebody may ask, well, isn't, aren't atheists a tribe? Well, I'm not sure they are. After all, atheism makes no claims. It only rejects what theists fail to prove. In the final chapter of my book, I question whether the word atheist ought to exist at all. Because, as you probably all know, we don't have a word for those who don't believe in fairies or leprechauns or trolls. We don't have words for those who don't collect stamps or don't worship a sports team. Even though all humans are born atheists until someone indoctrinates them, the word atheist really has only become an epithet to label and castigate non-believers, those who are outside the religious tribe. Religious tribalism leads me to the third lesson, and that is that honesty has a price. I knew in my head that people would be upset with me when they found out that I didn't believe anymore. I knew I was going to lose friends. But when it happened, I was still shaken. Again, I think I naively thought that people would honor authenticity and still be my friend. Back to that coming out column, as I call it. Quote, why not keep my doubts to myself? Part of me would like to keep silent out of the fear that people may think less of me or get angry with me and tell me so. 
After all, I've been writing this column for some time without revealing my growing unbelief. I could take this secret to my grave. But I also know how crippling secrets are and that it is important every once in a while to tell the secret of who we are. If we don't, we risk coming to believe the edited version of ourselves we hope others will find acceptable. All of us, religious or not, should value authenticity. If we do, then we should encourage not only critical thinking, but also intellectual honesty without fear of rejection or reprisal. My disclosure carries the risks of losing friends and facing disappointment and disapproval from those who once admired my spirituality. Belief, however, is not something you can fake or should fake. End of quote. I believed that then, and I still believe it to be true. But intellectual honesty does have a price, and it was naive of me to think otherwise. I'm sure most of you know that Charles Darwin first posited the theory of evolution in the late 1830s, but it was not until 1859 that it was finally published in his work, The Origin of Species. Why the wait? Now, some scholars think that the 20-year delay was because of Darwin's workload. Darwin understood the concept that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. He knew his ideas were going to be controversial, his topic was big, so he needed to have as much evidence as he could possibly muster to back up his ideas. In his autobiography, Darwin said that he gained much by my delay in publishing from about 1839, when the theory was clearly conceived, to 1859, and I lost nothing by it. I still think, however, that Darwin knew the impact that his findings would have, including the fear of religious persecution or social disgrace if his views were revealed. He was concerned about upsetting his clergy friends and his pious wife, Emma, whom he loved very much. Emma was a very devout Christian who was upset by her husband's lack of faith. They, the, the, Emma and Charles had lost uh, many of their children, but some biographers say that in particular, facing the death of their oldest daughter, Annie, gave Darwin deeper insight into the nature of evolution and helped Emma come to terms with her husband's work. Deborah and I were on holidays last month, and, and I read... Adam Gopnik's Angels and Ages. It's a short book about Darwin and Lincoln in modern life, which I do recommend. And in the beginning, Gopnik says that Darwin was worried about the effect that publishing his ideas would have on Emma. He says Darwin feared it would hurt her, it would undermine her and pain her for him to publish these ideas. Believers have doubts, I believe. They can keep them secret, and I certainly understand why you might want to do that. Or the believer can be honest and follow the questions where they lead, but also know that there is a price to be paid somewhere. Number four, we're over halfway there. Number four is every believer has their own deity. Every believer has their own deity. Now, you know that monotheism is the belief that there are not many gods, there's just one God. Uh, the great command of the Old Testament, which was very radical at the day, in the day, was that the Lord our God is one. I was, of course, very aware of the different beliefs in the one God. Uh, many of those differences were reflected in the hundreds and hundreds of Christian denominations we have today. 
But I tended to think that dogma aside, there was sort of one God at the core of Christianity that everyone believed in. What I've come to appreciate in the last five years is that every believer has their own belief system which tends to evolve with life's twists and turns. Case in point. I did a little experiment a few weeks ago and because um, I'm on Facebook and I got a lot of friends. I asked my Facebook friends who are believers if they could just share a definition of their deity. And the response included, and I quote, the universe is God, no heaven, no hell. All loving, but not governing. Life is way too miraculous to be random. A source of power within me to be channeled to do my best in whatever I choose. Heaven is created by people, and so is hell, and so on. Then what I did was I sort of perused the worship of congregations here in London just by looking at their uh, Sunday, their websites on Sunday morning worship. So I did a little bit of research. One congregation in London refers to God as the still point of the circle round whom all creation turns. Now, I really have no idea what that means. I even looked at the website of the United Church of Canada, a church that I served for 34 years. And under the United Church of Canada's website, under the rubric, What We Believe, it says, God is holy mystery beyond complete knowledge, above perfect description. Under faith and the Bible, this is the best one, under faith and the Bible, I read, quote, the Bible is the shared standard for our faith but members are not required to adhere to any particular creed or formulation of doctrine. To me, that reads like, hey, whatever floats your boat, right? After all, no Christian is required to adhere to any particular creed. Believe in the God with whom you feel comfortable or the one that you can imagine at this point in your life, even if it's a different image or understanding of God than you used to have. A former but still active United Church colleague here in London who said to me over lunch recently with a straight clerical face when I asked him that God is like the force in Star Wars. Whatever. May the force be with you. Number five. Here's the final lesson that I think I've taken from my journey. That is, there is no return belief. I recently came across a blog post that someone here in London wrote shortly after the book was published, actually, but I'd never spotted it before. Um, This person calls himself a trained apologist, whatever that means, written after the book was published. And I won't go into his rebuttal to my book, but it was the writer's last line that really got me thinking. He wrote, by God's grace, my prayer is that Ripley will, perhaps for the first time, find his way home. Now, earlier he had admitted that he heard me speak to his colleagues and at one time counted me as a real brother in ministry. And now his prayer was that I may come home, perhaps for the first time, which echoes a uh, familiar criticism of former believers that they never really believed in the first place which is one of the reasons why I go to such extent to 
lay out my, what I consider my solid Christian credentials at the start of the book, just to underscore the fact that I really did believe I gave my heart and my soul, as Deb will tell you, to the spread of the gospel. But anyway, this trained apologist hopes that I come back. And he's not alone. Uh, as re- recently as two months ago, I got a, a note in the mail from a friend who still thinks that the reason I rejected Christianity is because I'm angry with God because my mother was killed by a drunk driver 14 years ago. Now, I know she means well, but she mailed her note to me in the hope that I would somehow rethink my position and come back to faith in Christ. So I got thinking, what about the idea of coming back? What would it take me to change my mind a second time do another 180-degree turn and come back to the fold. Is there anything that those of us who used to believe could uh, happen to us or be told to us that would cause us to come back? Well, obviously, if an all-powerful deity were to say hello to humanity in such a way that everyone everywhere would know it, that would do it. I think for most of us. Of course, then we wouldn't be believing anymore. We would just know that God exists. But is there any argument from an apologist, trained or otherwise, that might sway me to once again bow to an invisible God? The short answer is no. And I'll explain with an analogy. On a recent holiday, uh, I met a guy who loved to do card tricks. And he was really good. And he loved, you know, if you had a spare moment, oh, let me show you this one. He could do a card trick. And he's good. And, but one day, he kind of fudged the code of the magician, and he showed me how he did a couple of his card tricks. Now, where I had just been awed by the hocus-pocus, I now saw how he managed to create an illusion. And once I saw it, there was no way I could go back to being odd and thinking that he had special powers. Now, that may not be the best analogy, but it seems the most apt these days. Once you see how we got here and how religion got here, it is inconceivable, to me at least, short of that spectacular worldwide greeting from the creator of the universe, that I can see myself back in the pulpit again. Or another short analogy. Once the little dog, Toto, pulled back the curtain to reveal the smoky, scary image to be actually a little man who made up a supreme being and a belief system to manipulate little people into believing he was powerful. Dorothy Gale and her friends could never go back to being afraid of the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. The longer I think about the tenets of the faith that I once espoused, the more difficulty I have remembering who that person was. How could I go back to being that person? Worship the God of the Bible who advocates rape, slavery, and genocide? Well, I happen to think that those things are wrong. So that makes me more more moral than the God of the Bible. If I think of the notion of God sending himself to sacrifice himself to himself to save us from himself, the more I know what a stretch that is for any logical person. So five years later, what have I learned? I've learned that it's 
of no use pointing out evidence to those who believe without evidence. They are unlikely to leave their tribe because the cost is so high. I've learned that everyone has created their own God and that once you step away from that God, there's no going back. And you know what? That's okay. I have paid a little bit of a price, my ordination and my column, but it's not like the price that others have had to pay. I have a new tribe of runners, for instance. I have a new relationship, not with Christ, but with reality. Even though my beliefs do not include a deity, I still have beliefs. I still believe that no person or group of persons is inferior to any others. I believe that what matters is not so much what we believe, but how we conduct ourselves for these few short, fragile years of being alive. I believe that experiencing the beauty and wonder of the universe, including this pale blue dot in the remote corner of our galaxy, is an indescribably wonderful privilege. As I conclude in the book, I believe in the taste of a cold martini, the smell of a rhubarb pie, the joy of running, the feel of being hugged, and so many things that I know exist that makes this life the best life I'll ever have. Thanks very much.